until the last day in our lives in the press conference. But here, I'm going to tell you the truth. So he's not the biggest, the fastest, or the smartest. So how does a lion become the king of the jungle? His mentality. Join us on our journey to educate and develop the current and next generation of coaches. Our staff strives to achieve our mission to give the game back to the players. One coach at a time. Visit www.coachedsoccer.com for all your coach education needs. Welcome back to the Coach Ed Soccer Podcast, guys. My name's Eric Claremont. Today, we've got a treat for you. We've got Shaul Shahagiel. He is the current specialist coach at Maccabee Tel Aviv. Um, I spent some time with Shah um, when he was in South Florida working uh, with Parkland Soccer Club and also the SAT Academy. Um, You know, Shah's very much a player development expert, somebody who has a ton of experience um, he's going to talk about his experience in the U.S. Um, and then obviously going back to his native Israel um, to, to coach at Maccabee Tel Aviv. We'll be talking about, um, you know, how things are going in, in his current academy role, what his day to day looks like as a specialist coach. Um, and we'll also be talking a little bit about the evolution of the goalkeeper position, something that Shai is very um, passionate about and, and, and has, has a lot of knowledge about. So um, a treat for you guys today. How's it going, Shah? Hey, Eric. Uh, doing well. First of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I think it's fantastic what you've been doing, especially in the coaching education platform. It's a pleasure to speak with you after many years and uh, happy to see that we're both uh, following our dreams. So it's going to be fantastic and I'm excited for it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I kind of always knew, man, where, you know, when I first met you and uh, the f- those first conversations, just how passionate you were about player development, making players better and also just pushing the needle for you. Right. And always trying to be better and always thinking about, you know, what's the next step? What's the next step? So I'm really, really happy to kind of reconnect and, uh, um, you know, really let the uh, listeners know your um, journey and, 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 you know, as a as a tool for them to hopefully see um, what opportunities are available to those people who, if you're passionate and you're willing to put in the hard work. Um, so really happy to have you on, Shah. So, Shah, why don't you start with just um, a brief biography, just with your background, um, you know, uh, from your playing career into your coaching career. How did you get into coaching um, and what led you, you know, from the US to Israel, um, you know, um, to, to, to your current role uh, today? Well, first off, uh, the journey's been around a 15-year-long journey. Uh, honestly, I didn't think I would um, would get to this point in my career because there, there's been a lot of doubts. When you're not an ex-professional player, there's not a clear, real clear pathway completely to have agree, a career as the yeah. coach. So, so I'm sure a lot of guys who um, could relate to that, that, you know, whether it be family, whether it be a you know, significant others saying like, hey, you know, it's time to get a real job. But I think in, the, in football, there's definitely a job for player development coaches. And we're seeing that all throughout the world, especially now with the uprise in the MLS academies. Uh, my journey has been very long. I think I've really had to um, basically earn everything that, I, that, I've, that I've gotten, whether it be success and whether it been promotions or whatnot. And I've constantly haven't been having to prove myself. So once again, I'll go back to it. If you're not an ex-pro with a big name, you're going to have to do that as a coach. It's going to be your content. It's going to be your delivery on the field. It's going to be the information. It's going to be the track record you have in developing players. Um, I was fortunate enough to start get my first opportunity actually as a volunteer at my former high school. So I ended up playing uh, college soccer at St. Thomas University. It's an NAIA school. Uh, actually, right now, they became a powerhouse in the NAIA. By that time, we're still up and coming. Um, in my junior year, I ended up volunteering at Monarch High School, which was a top uh, Broward County school, we could say. We were heavily influenced with uh, Latin American players and predominantly Brazilian players. And I got a chance to work for a legendary Broward County coach by the name of uh, Coach Steven Lorenz. He had over 400 victories in the high school game. And I really found a, a love for coaching there. Um, I saw how much, first off, it kept me in the competitive aspect of football, and I got to see the kind of impact that we had on these young players' lives. 
um, you know, beyond football, which really made, made it uh, sort of worthwhile for me. Uh, from Coach Lorenz, I got an opportunity to work with one of the most fantastic development player coaches that I've seen in, a, in a South Florida, which by the name of Roger Thomas. I got to work in a youth academy. And at first, it wasn't the most, you know, highly um, interesting thing for me because I was more about, you know, winning state championships and maybe coaching the collegiate level. But when I really saw what a purist Roger Thomas was and his wife Lori was and the type of academy they have and, and the type of type of players that they took and what they made with it. And uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about it later, the outcomes of the academy. That, that really gave me an urge to say, you know what, maybe I could do this. For a living, if I take it seriously, and if I really, uh, you know, try to become a professional and teach myself that there is a career path for me. So um, after that, let's just say it's all history. You know, I just basically kept working hard and seeked out opportunities and tried to make the most out of those opportunities. Fantastic, that's great, sure. I mean, and obviously, I know, I know Roger. That's where we met. So obviously, you know, in his academy um, down in uh, Parkland, Florida, I think uh, that was definitely a hotbed of talent, right? where, you know, players have moved on to, you know, pro clubs in Miami, even just abroad and things like that. Um, so with regards to your development, I think you, you touched on some fantastic points there, you know, um, not being an ex-professional and things like that. And you, you kind of touched on it, but I just want to go into kind of um, what you were talking about with regards to learning your craft. So what are some areas you felt that were important to developing yourself when first starting out that, that, that you felt would separate you as a coach, um, especially not having that, that kind of professional background and things like that. Are there any, any areas that you felt were really important to develop? The most important thing, first off, is the relationships that you develop with players. Okay, After you develop a sort of relationship, it comes down to content. So what are you delivering to, to, to your athletes? To, you know, um, How does it look from day to day? Now, for the most part, players at a high level they're smart. So if the things are repetitive and so on and so forth, it becomes stagnant and uh, the players will not, will not be excited for the next session or for the next game or for the information. So the main thing for me is to, I wanted to be a good coach. I wanted players to get information daily that could potentially help them get to their goals. As a young um, footballer, I train a lot of times on my own. And uh, mo- most of the times I was doing random things, you know, whether it'll be wall work or, or things like that. <clears throat> And I, I realized that if I had somebody who could really guide me in the right direction, that maybe I could have been a, a little bit of a higher level level player. So I think that when we have parents, especially in the United States, that take their kids out to the parks every day and we have kids that are, are coming out there and they're training and they're trying to get better, if we could give, especially the talented guys, the necessary information and the and the guidance, and whether it'll come from experience, from let's say, for, for instance, for ex-pros who have that because they went through that journey, or for somebody like me who would have to learn really how, how, are, how are the top clubs in the world developing players? Or why, or why is this guy so good at six, seven years old? What makes him so special that he could just, you know, note to turn, note to check over his shoulder? Like, where did he learn, learn that from? So I think I was fascinated with that. And uh, I was fascinated with the game. It all comes down with passion for the game. Because as we all know, we have a deep love for the game. It's, it's our escape. It's our, it's our place of happiness. And I think all that together basically help me, uh, you know, kind of shape me who I am as a coach. But the most important thing, I think, is, is giving players quality information. And at the end, there is no shortcuts and there is no compromising. So if you want to be good, you got to put the work in, especially as a coach, because uh, you, you see it probably all the time. Top level players become coaches and they fail real quick because they realize that, hey, you know, there's a gap here. There's something missing here. So not only is it man management, not only is it can I train players, uh, not only is can I motivate players, and this, in this day and age, you also have to be a psychologist. So I think all these things together create, create the, uh, the optimal coach. And in order to be a top-level coach, you, you have to constantly try to learn and evolve and, and take your step to the, next, to the next level. And especially if you want to work with higher-level players, you know. Fantastic. So that's great. I think, you know, bringing that, you know, to the forefront with regards to the starting point, right? You know, do you have a passion in developing people developing players to become better but then obviously you know those multiple different hats that you're going to have to wear that multidisciplinary approach you know sports psychology technical ability you know can you break down film all of these aspects are going to kind of put you on a pathway to help the player more and more and that's going to give you more opportunities and as you said which I'm a big believer in 
Are you a lifelong learner, right? Do you feel as if, you know, uh, do you have that growth mindset um, to continue developing and feel that you can always get better? Or, you know, versus, you know, uh, you know, especially with regard to the player, because um, I think I've, I've, I've recently seen some research with regards to the link between um, the growth mindset of a coach and, and their thought process of, of talent being malleable and flexible and being able to improve that um, and the link between that and, and the growth mindset of the players. So now if within your language and your methodology, your, you, know, you, you really base the, you know, the, you know, that language on the fact that players can get better if they're willing to put the work in rather than you know, talents, talent being something that is, is kind of always going to be the same. I think um, that has a very direct correlation between um, the the growth mindset of the player. So I think some some fantastic points there, Sha. Um, so t- talk to us about you know going from obviously you know coaching in the Broward County area. You know um, what was the what were the steps with regards to um, making this the step to 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 go to 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 go um, to Israel? Obviously. Um, and, and, and coaching out there. So, you know, t- tell us about that, that uh, process of, of, of um, you know, uh, really making the decision, first of all, and then the opportunities that, that, were, that, that were kind of given to you. Yeah. So, um, my career in the, in the States, um, I did start at Monarch High School and I ended up going to the soccer academy and training, which we had a tremendous amount of success. From then on, I ended up coaching at Nova Southeastern University, a women's program, for approximately three three and a half years and ended up going to Troy women's uh, soccer Troy University Division one program in Alabama which we had recent success after you know finishing my master's at Troy I had a kind of um, you know a dilemma more of a family my father was kind of not in the best of health and he was in Israel and I decided at that time that it would be better for me in my career to kind of take a sabbatical from coaching <laughs> as you would say I ended up coming to Israel uh, for approximately one year, I actually worked in a in a high tech company. So we basically, I worked on the computer all day, and uh, I didn't know for sure if I was going to stay in the country or not. Um, I ended up realizing after that year that obviously I want to get back into football, and I think it's important also as coaches because at that time I was probably already nine years into coaching, and uh, I was coaching club, I was coaching high school, I was coaching college, I was doing private lessons, I was maybe spending ten to to 12 hours a day on the field, believe it or not, okay? If you, if you want to add it from the morning hours of 7 a.m., going to school and coming back around 8, 9 o'clock, finishing the academy days. Wow. So um, that that one year really helped me out in terms of learning how to balance myself. It also gave me the, um, the reassurance that what I do want to do is coaching, what I do want to do is coaching the rest of my life. And um, I ended up having an opportunity to interview at Maccabi Tel Aviv, she just picked up the phone and I spoke to them. I incorporated. I wanted to speak to the director, which at the time was uh, Patrick Van Leeuwen. They ended up uh, giving me an interview with one of the directors at the academy. It wasn't Patrick at the time. And um, they told me, listen, we don't really have a spot for you right now. But uh, you, if you want to come on as a volunteer, we'll give you a six-month an opportunity to kind of prove yourself because we don't really know uh, what you're about. I mean, we, we see your stuff online and that's all really nice. But look, this is Maccabi Tel Aviv. This is a, a top team in Israel in terms of developing players and you're going to have to prove yourself. So I spent six months literally working from 1 p.m. to uh, 8 p.m. with no salary. Okay. And um, and after that, I was fortunate enough to get two salaries in the su- or two contracts in the summer. One was as a as a coach, as a specialist coach. And I also got an opportunity to work with the B team as a director of operations. So I thought the director operation role would help me out a lot more in terms of the administration role and things like I came into Maccabi Tel Aviv. I mean, it was it was absolutely fantastic. It was just it, the facilities are a little are not what you will see in an MLS academy. I'll tell you that much. There's so much magic in the in, the, in that facility. I mean, we, we've had a tournament in the summer where we had teams like Crystal Palace come aboard, Excess Elior from uh, from Holland, uh, some top teams from Israel as well. And you just saw the type of level these players were at, and the type of future pros that you would see. That I was very, very happy and lucky. And uh, honestly, from then on, I, ha- I haven't looked back. You know, I, I took my education to another level. Um, I think in the U.S., we're really, really fortunate with the United Soccer Coaches Convention that you guys have there every year. I really wish that I, I could, I could actually do that. I kind of missed that 
in terms of networking and in terms of learning. Uh, so in Israel, I have to be really creative of how I want to get better. And it's, I spend countless hours, you know, studying coaches, whether it's online and, you know, legendary guys like Dick Bate, watching their sessions over and over and over again, uh, reading countless books, trying to take my game to the next level because I realize that, hey, I'm working with, with top level players here. So my information needs to be good. I need to be credible. I need to be effective and I need, I need to be able to execute on the field when I get out there. And the game is always changing, as you know, Eric. So once you stop learning, you stop progressing, uh, you're, just, you're going downhill, you know. I always say it, it's like a bike, you know, if you're uphill and you're pedaling, you're going to be fine. You might be pedaling slow, but you're going up. Once you stop, it, you're going downhill. So that was really for me to, to keep pushing that envelope and, uh, and not be satisfied. Absolutely. No, and I think, again, some, some, some goldmine stuff there. Again, just again, the touch on the passion, right, that you've spoken about. You, you know, you're working 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, first of all, in, in South Florida, you know, doing college, club, high school, private sessions. And now you get a voluntary opportunity where you don't even know if it's going to work out right, where you're just you're betting on you're betting on yourself. Right. At the end of the day um, to 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 say, hey, look, like I'm willing to to kind of uh, grind here and to show my worth and to continue developing and have that mindset. Um, and and then on top of that, just the idea of. You know, if if you're not getting, um, you know, if, if you're not improving, you're getting worse, right? There's no there's no staying the same. There's kind of you know the bike analogy that you said, um, traveling uphill and all of that. Now, um, one thing that I think is a really important thing to touch on here is, um, you know, you mentioned the different ways um, that you develop yourself um, as a coach, you know, online and things like that. I think one aspect that is perhaps coming up in the in the in the uh coach development spaces nowadays there's so many resources for us to get better at you know there's you know tactical um physical programs there's there's stuff on youtube there's stuff online there's paid unpaid there's podcasts right how do you filter the stuff that you feel is going to be important for you so that you can kind of make the right decision um as to what you need as a coach um, and really just talking generally for, for, for our coaches in general, because I think, you know, with the vast array and amount of information that's available to us today, it's so difficult, right, to decide, okay, um, you know, I'm going to go down this kind of, you know, rabbit hole and kind of really focus on this now versus, you know, uh, going to do this. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that, Sha? Absolutely. I, I think what's most important, especially for young guys who are coming up and want to make this a profession, and as we see as time progresses, becoming an academy coach and developmental expert, there is a career for that. Um, you have to make sure, I think, the number one thing is to have a mentor. Okay, You need to have somebody that you could go ahead and pick up the phone to and ask questions. For me at the time in, in South Florida, it was Roger Thomas. It was, uh, it was Stephen Lorenz. You know, those guys are the ones who helped help me out. With, with, with certain things and also when you see it done the right way you have a feeling that this is the right this is the way it should be you know in a, in a training session there always needs to be two things and that's intensity and quality okay intensity and quality if you're missing one of those things then you're, you're not on the right path okay so you need to figure out how can i get my session to be intense and how can i get it to be quality and quality usually depends on the content that you're providing to those players now for me as a coach i have to look at a lot of things Things. I have to look at first off, how is my man management? Okay, um, how am I managing players from the day to day? Okay, you have to look at, at the mental aspect of your players. You know, nowadays, you know, in the in, in the era of likes, you know, Instagram and likes and, and all these posts and all these things, but you have to make sure your your player is mentally sound. You know, he's mentally sharp, he's mentally focused, he has the ability to deal to deal with setbacks. So I think that's really important. So for instance, mentally, I look at I have a, I have let's say I call it a digital mentor, and that'll be Bill Beswick. You know, I study a lot of Bill Beswick. I watch his work. You know, uh, I know now he has Parkinson's, but he's still he's a fantastic motivator. And his content, it might be a, it's it's not limited online, but as we head on more years, it might be limited. So I'm trying to take as much as I can from him. Uh, in terms of on the field sessions, tactically, I look at a guy like Dick Bate because I see the kind of enthusiasm he has and t the type of uh, attention to detail he has. I like the fact that he relates. You know, when he talks to a player, he says, "Hey." 
I want you to be like Maldini today as a center back. I want you to position yourself here and with your body here. So the relation to the players, it's intriguing. It's fascinating. You know, when it comes down to goalkeepers, I look at Franz Hook, which is an expert for Holland. He was actually in the World Cup right now with uh, with um, Louis van Gaal, van Gaal. And he had uh, a surprise. He brought a second second division goalkeeper. He ended up being a second division goalkeeper, not playing in the first division. He made him the number one the Dutch, so I learn a lot from him in terms of the goalkeeping things. You know, in terms of the physical aspect, I look at an expert like Raymond Verheyen, which is a, a Dutch expert, foot, uh, football expert, which is an expert, in, he's an expert in periodization of football. Okay, and then um, obviously you have to look at other coaches in other fields, whether it's Phil Jackson from from basketball and how he dealt with Kobe Bryant and, and Jordan and those guys. Or whether it'll be other other guys, man management guys, it could even be guys who are Fortune 500 companies. So I think you really have to look at yourself and evaluate yourself. And the main thing is, besides the mentor, is to have self reflection. So what I do a lot now is I have a GoPro. Actually, I have it right here with me. I'm showing it to you. Obviously, the the, the, the listeners can't see it. I take the GoPro for me to almost every session, and I'll pass it along to some of my other coaching colleagues, whether it'll be in the States or whether it'll be in Israel or with the Federation and Israel Football Federation. And I'll say, hey, man, maybe you could take a look at my session. Tell me where I could improve. Tell me what I, what I can do better. You know, I think the main thing is we need to, we need to look at ourselves like top-level athletes, like, you know, like the Kobe Bryants or the Michael Jordans, always finding ways to be hungry, to be better, to improve because if you're not doing that there's probably somebody else who is doing that and if you want to be the best and you want to be top you have to always find those levels so I don't necessarily have a curriculum I think I just look at it kind of like the players the physical mental technical tactical social and then overall I also add the man management part in that you know and, and it's a journey and it's a process and I'm sure I do a lot of things not the right way but as long as you're trying to learn and like you said you have that growth mindset then uh, you're in the right direction you know in, in your development <clears throat> That's fantastic. And again, just to bring that all together, I think one of the key parts that you mentioned, obviously having a mentor. So also having a digital mentor, if that's possible, um, but also a face-to-face mentor. Um, Having your own ideas, right, with regards to what are the non-negotiables for you? You mentioned intensity and quality. So that's going to range with regards to different things, different values for different people based on obviously what is most important to them, right? So really, you know, you've developed your own um, your, your own framework based on what is important to you and what you've seen through your experiences, right? So I think, um, you know, where there's so many different ideas, as you mentioned, um, really seeing, you know, having a bit of a tunnel vision to kind of at a certain point um, understand what your methodology or what your focus is going to be and where where you can kind of, really be you, right? Because, you know, that's the best thing, you know, um, that we can do, right? Um, you know, other than, you know, trying to, try, you know, you can try to, um, you know, I'll say steal, but, you know, take ideas from here and there, but you really need to make it yours, right? So that it's authentic to the players. That's one thing that we all know that players understand and realise when you're being authentic or you're not being authentic. So, as you said, making it yours um, and then, that gives you an opportunity to now um, get through to the players. And then, as you said, really love the idea about the GoPro with regards to recording yourself. Um, I do it with a Veo and a little um, earpiece here and obviously try to do the same thing. One is self-evaluation, but also peer evaluation, right? Can you get a coach to come and, and uh, you know, come and watch your session, come and watch this recording, you know, um, people, you know, for different ideas and different... Um, you know, thoughts so that it stays fresh, right? Because at the end of the day, if we're in a silo and we keep thinking, you know, there's one way and, you know, uh, you don't have different, um, you know, kind of different types of feedback um, about your your methods, then you're never going to, you're never going to grow. So I think um, there's some fantastic, uh, some fantastic different um, um, aspects there that you spoke about. So, so talk to us about, you know, Maccabi Tel Aviv and going from a voluntary position to now your specialist coaching position. What was that process? Um, how did you? How do you feel you were able to kind of? Because obviously you've got that um, the role there now. Um, you know what were some things that you kind of tried to stand out with over there, and um, and then you know how did your role develop between now and, between now and then? Yeah. So um, in the United States, I had several roles. I, I was a head coach. I was an assistant coach. I was considered a goalkeeping expert as well. Uh, when I came to Maccabi Tel Aviv, the main thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be 
branched out, which means I didn't want to be just necessarily with one team. So if you're a head coach or an assistant coach, you're with one team. That's your responsibility. You're with them for the rest of the season and uh, with, with those group of guys. So I got the opportunity to work with the U8s to U12 level. Uh, that was my first, um, actually, two years in Maccabi Tel Aviv. I ended up being, you know, a goalkeeping coach, but I got to actually help out a lot of the coaches and how to incorporate the goalkeeper into the team sessions. And it, earlier in my career, a lot of my goalkeeping work was a lot of technical work, okay, with a little bit of tactics. But throughout the years, I really learned how to actually put the goalkeeper in that tactical context, but also with the team. Okay, so how do we incorporate the goalkeeper in possession to create a numerical over? Or how does the goalkeeper uh, defend the space, you know, behind the back line? How does the goalkeeper defend the area? Um, so th- those little little nuances made me a better coach. It also gave me a little bit more credibility with the head coaches I was working for. And it wasn't that easy because at first, you know, I'm a new guy coming in there. I'm coming to the coach and telling him, hey, man, you know, you're, you're playing a 4v4 here and the goalkeeper is over there doing something. Maybe we can incorporate him into the 4v4 in an isolated uh you know, in an isolated free zone and having maybe limited to two touches and get him getting some decisions in there. So once they started, once I started gaining their trust, I kind of got a little bit more responsibility. And at the end, the work speaks for itself. When you when you show up every day early and, and you leave late, you know, whether it'll be the first one in, last one out, that's the kind of mentality I have. You know, I think that you, you go ahead and you prove to, to, the, to your counterparts that you're there for business. And then when they see the results on the field, they're also more intrigued. They will trust you more and they will go ahead and, uh, you know, come for you for advice and things like that. Um, after my two years there, it was a decision from the directors to put me with some older players as well. And I ended up working with the B team from Maccabi Tel Aviv. So it was actually pretty interesting. We had the first U23 uh, team in Israel and we played in the second division. So everybody said we would be going down the league. <laughs> we ended up playing some of the most fantastic football in the second division. We finished fifth place, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was actually to promote as many players to the first division as possible. And my first year, we actually developed 12 players from um, the B team to the Premier League of Israel. Second year, it was it was 10. And then the, the project kind of uh, unfolded in the third year due to some, uh, you know, politics, let's, let's, let's say that way. And um, But we were very highly successful. So I learned tons of things on their player pathway as well there. So... Um, once I got the opportunity to work with the older age groups, which was 15 to 19, and now you're going to more of the competition phase, okay? So we're going from the foundation phase of building players to more of the competitive phase or pre-professional phase, as you guys might call it in England or, or in the U.S. Yeah. And then it becomes really a, a different type of ball game. It becomes more about tactics. It becomes about refining techniques. It becomes about you know trying to win matches and so on and so forth. And then I wanted to kind of give more to the club and kind of take myself to the next level. So I, the past two years I've been studying set pieces and uh, I've been, you know, not, not that I am a set piece coach, but I've considered myself now a set piece specialist. So I help a lot of the teams out in the defensively and attacking wise, whether it's free kicks or corner kicks or, or even dead ball situations. So I think that's a, that's a positive for young goalkeeper coaches. It's, I don't think the right approach is just to coach the goalkeeper and kind of there and I hope the goalkeeper plays well you got to learn how to integrate him within the team and the more you know about the players roles within the team the better you can integrate your goalkeeper and the more you can help your staff with set pieces the more you could be uh, a positive uh, for the a positive contribution to the staff and to the players and, and to your academy you know fantastic so again like loads of different seeds there that you've planted so I'm going to start um with one of them just incorporating the goalkeepers into your session. So, you know, for, you know, young and aspiring coaches, goalkeeper coaches, but also, you know, coaches who perhaps don't have a staff, right, to, to, um, to, 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 inco- you know, to be able to incorporate, um, you know, the goalkeepers within their sessions and, and to focus specifically on the goalkeepers. What are some pointers that, that you would kind of um, bring in with regards to, kind of getting goalkeepers um, involved within the session, um, you know, from like, let's say the start to the end of the session, let's say, you know, you're doing like some kind of rondos to start with into a positional game, into kind of a more small-sided game. How would you kind of um, aid coaches um, to, to, to think about that process of, 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 of making sure that the goalkeeper is still developing, right? And rather than, 
you know, seeing them just as, a, as an afterthought, which often happens, unfortunately, you know, be, just because of the lack of resources. Um, you know, any, any ideas there with regards to, you know, um, how coaches can incorporate their goalkeepers within their sessions um, and within their session planning? Um, recently, I've been fortunate enough to start working with the Israeli Football Federation as one of the coaching instructors and educators as well. So I've really been seeing what's happening here. And it's, it's similar to the stuff I've, I saw in the States. Now, we need to start looking at the goalkeeper as a goal player. Okay, so Franz Hooker, once one of the mentors I was talking to you about before, he started calling the goalkeeper now a goal player. And, and ever since we have the pass back rule of 1992, we're seeing that the goalkeeper is touching the ball seven times with his feet before he touches it with his hand. Okay. Uh, in the recent years, we had the rule that players are allowed to start build the play, right? Dead ball situations inside the box. Okay. So we're seeing that the goalkeeper is creating numerical uh, advantages in the attack and he needs to be sufficient with his feet. Okay. So what I, I would, what I would recommend. And a lot of the guys maybe don't have the necessary experience to understand goalkeeping specific techniques, and that's okay. If you don't have that, then treat the goalkeeper, especially at the younger ages, whether it's eight to eleven, treat him as a field player. If you if it if it's the if it's the dribbling activities, if it's the um, if it's the passing activities, okay, treat him as a field player because at the end of the day, when you give a pass back to the goalkeeper, you want him to be comfortable. You want him to be able to change the point of attack. You want him to be able to play a penetrating pass. You want to be able to break pressure, okay? So these are the these are the basic, simple, fundamentals. Now, small-sided games, I mean, you could do a, a lot of things. You, know, you could put them on the end lines, and they could go ahead and be targets with their hands. You know, And once they have the ball in their hands, they can restart play. So the main thing that we're seeing is can we get the, the goalkeeper better in the transition from defense to attack, which that'll be maybe a, a bowling throw or underhand throw. We call in Israel a bowling throw, but it's an underhand throw or a throw over your shoulder. Right, that could initiate attack. Or could the goalkeeper put the ball on the ground, right? Because maybe everybody's pressed man to man, and he's the free player. Can he put the ball on the ground and try to find the target, or maybe dribble a couple of meters forward upfield and wait for the midfielder to rotate, you know, and, and make a nice run into space and play that ball into the right right space? So for me personally, I was a field player until the age of 13, 14. I played a right back, I played striker, and so on and so forth, and then I made a transition into goalkeeping. Um, and when I made that transition to goalkeeping, it was fun for me to play with my feet. You know, I was comfortable. I was able to switch the point of attack. I was able to play the deep penetrating passes. The stuff I needed better to get better at was the decision-making defensively, you know, and the shot-stopping and those things. And that comes with time. And I think American goalkeepers are very hand-eye coordinated. They're very naturally good at that because you have the football players, the baseball players, the basketball players. So those guys usually have it naturally. But nowadays, the goalkeeper's got to be good with his feet. And with all that being said, we need to expect that the goalkeeper is going to make mistakes because at the highest levels, uh, whether it's Allison Becker or Ederson, the two top Brazilian guys that are fantastic with the feet, they're going to be losing balls. Okay, they're going to be giving away possession. So we got to be patient with them, and we got to understand that that it could happen. But I think coaches just need to be a little bit more open-minded. I think if you have a goalkeeper coach. Be ask him how maybe utilize him better. You know, ask him, hey, where could I put the goalkeeper in this activity to maybe get him some touches? Because what we what we see a lot in the in the Israel football field is a lot of goalkeepers are just based into the goal for finishing activities. And even these finishing activities, right? Can we make them that the success is more sometimes for the goalkeeper rather than the strikers? Okay. So for instance, I'll give you an example: minus two, you know, or minus one uh, before a game, uh, match day before a game. You don't, want to, you don't want to really be doing finishing from close range. Personally, I don't want my goalkeeper to be dealing with a lot of shots from close range where you're just getting pummeled with goals because his confidence level is low. He feels a little bit helpless, right? And I'm getting a little bit more fatigued before the game. And what I really want is to build confidence and freshness. So I think that you need to, you need to be understanding about the goalkeeping position. The coach needs to be, understand that it's a sensitive position and it's a specialized position. So find the goalkeeping guy that you could trust, that you listen to, and, and try to incorporate your goalkeeper as a field player as much as possible. And in, and in the possession-oriented games, it's really not that hard. Um, I would just basically put him – think about the direction the goalkeeper will be. So he'll always be north and south, right? He's not going to be east and west. So in these possession games, you could put him there. I don't really like the goalkeeper playing in the joker position because that's more of a you know, number 10 or the free player position. But we like putting him on the end lines there. And we'll, we, we might start with just limiting them to a free zone. 
So you could get a pass back, nobody could pressure you, and you have up to three touches, right? Then we'll make it a little harder. We'll make it two touches. Then maybe we'll make it one touch. Then maybe we'll take the free zone away. So that's kind of some ideas that you could kind of incorporate the goalkeeper into the team play and, and improve them. That's, again, like some, some great little points there. I loved um, how you mentioned the goal player, right? Goal player rather than goalkeeper. I think um, yeah. incorporating them as a player is one thing that all coaches can do. Last year, Eric. I mean, Fred really? Franz Hook just yeah. started that last year. Yeah, he, he started talking about that big time. So, yeah. Because that's I think, a big development as you're now. saying, right, that's one thing that any and all coaches can do, right, at the youth level is incorporating mm-hmm. them within the technical aspects of, you know, um, dribbling, passing, because the, the more they, the more comfortable they are um, with ball manipulation and ability to actually handle the ball the better they're going to be with their feet, right? So as a starting point, that's what we can start. And then, as you mentioned more, <clears throat> I loved the the thought the thought process that you were going through uh, with regards to that sensitive and specialised, um, uh, especially with regards to, you know, the match day minus two, right? With regards to, you know, from a psychological standpoint, what are you doing to the goalkeeper across the, uh, you know, across the space of a week, right? So um, when are you putting in... Um, you know, um, perhaps you know um, drills or, or or aspects of the of the game where perhaps they're challenged more. Which is again, as you said, easy shots for the strikers. Um, what is that doing to the goalkeeper's morale, right? And um, when do you want the goalkeeper's morale to peak? Um, so I think again, some 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 great points there. Um, just kind of as we're on the kind of um, the topic of goalkeeper, what you know, how do you think the the goalkeeper positions evolving. So you mentioned obviously number of touches with feet, um, with the with the uh, back pass rule. Um, you know any other kind of ideas with regards to areas that goalkeepers will need to be um, really good at in the in the upcoming years. Yeah. So what we're seeing in the federation has been some research done on it. Uh, we're seeing that goalkeepers are dealing with a lot more of long range shooting. And the long-range shooting comes from players being more technically skilled and more uh, lethal with their shots. So I think a lot of shots uh, from, from uh, you know, maybe 20 meters and beyond through traffic, that's something that goalkeeper coaches need to, need to worry, focus on. Uh, we're seeing a lot more high-velocity high shots, a lot of deflections and things like that. Obviously, the majority of goals are still coming in, zone, in the zone 14 area, closer to the goal, one-time finishes across the box, which that is, you know, part of the trends of the game. Uh, we're also seeing... A lot of crosses coming in. The crosses are coming in with a lot more pace, uh, you know, a, a lot more, more tougher for the goalkeeper to come off his line or stay on his line. So I think this is stuff that the goalkeeper coach could really try to figure out how to incorporate into the training. And that comes from starting position. Okay, where does the goalkeeping start? Depending on where, which foot is being played in, right? Is it a right-footed cross? Is it a left-footed cross? Is it an early cross, okay? Is it a cutback cross, okay? So this is starting position. A starting position also depends... And if there's pressure on the ball or not, right? Because if there's pressure on the ball, then the, then the position might be different than if there is no pressure on the ball, okay? Uh, once again, I think the goalkeeper also with his feet, he must be good with both feet. You know, nowadays in the professional game, you're seeing goalkeepers have to play with both feet at times. They're getting passed back to their left foot. I don't think a goalkeeper could, could hide anymore and just playing left-footed clearances. For instance, if you're right foot dominantly, you need to be able to play with your left foot. You need to be able to trap the ball. You need to be able to play short, medium-range passes, and even at times, long-range passes to bypass pressure. Um, but the key is here, the goalkeeper needs to be smart with tactical solutions. So back in the day, the goalkeeper would just be a, you know, a wild guy. He's very aggressive. He's good at catching the ball. He's coming out at 1v1, and he's brave. But now we're looking at the guys being a lot more intelligent. They have to find the free player in the build-up opportunity. They have to also find out how to to get to, to beat pressure, whether it's playing around, playing over, or playing through. I'll go back to another thing that they need to improve in terms of defensively is defense behind the back line. So we call it in, in the English, the, the English FA have done something fantastic. They've basically divided it into defending the goal, defending the area, defending the space. So defending the goal would be shot stopping 1v1, defending the area will be crosses, defending the space would be the space behind the back line. So now we're seeing a lot of teams wanting to press more, right? So they're pressing more up the pitch, which means what? Which means the back line is higher, which means the goalkeeper has more space to defend, which means the goalkeeper needs to be in not only a good starting position, needs to recognize is there pressure on or off the ball? Because if there's pressure 
on the ball, then maybe I could position myself a little bit deeper and maybe steal a little bit more ground. If there's no pressure on the ball, then I need to be I need to be smart at where's the threat, you know, where's the strikers, how many strikers is the opposition playing by. So I think that the, the, the position is really evolving, um, also with the rules of the game. But at the, at the same time, we're seeing the goalkeeper being a, a lot more responsible defensively and attacking wise. And it all communication. If you could organize your team to be compact and to recognize that, hey, a long ball's coming, guys. Let's drop off, okay? Or, hey, we got this player making a deep run. He's very aggressively. Let's hold our line and keep him offside. Obviously, he needs to match the team tactics. But but these are the things that we're seeing that that uh, that the game that the goalkeeper is taking it to another level, you know? That's fantastic. And it started off from the back pass rule, I think. And like I said, now the players are faster, stronger, more skillful, okay? A lot of combination playing the box. The 1v1, if you're seeing a trend in the goalkeeping game, is a lot of blocks, right? The goalkeepers are coming off their line and they're spreading, okay? Uh, one goalkeeper that's really good at that is, is David De Gea. He does that fantastically. But you might have another guy from Atletico Madrid like Jan Oblak who might not do the K position. We call it the K or the five-point save or the block save, right? There's a short block, there's a long block, and there's a hybrid block. That's courtesy of uh, Phil Wedding the Philadelphia Union. So there's different types of block. But when do we use the block, right? So a lot of goalkeepers, they might use the block from 60, a 16-meter shot. That's not right, you know? So I think within that five-meter range, that's the time to use the block. But you have to have a proactive mindset on when you want to use that. And then at the end of the day, the goalkeeper needs to stand and he needs to react with, the, with, with in a certain distance. That needs to rely on his set position and his instinct. So we don't want to default, go automatically to a default position. So our, at, our, at our academy, we try not to teach the five-point save too much at a younger age because we want our goalkeepers to use more of reactions. Okay, but as they get a little bit older, we definitely add that into the toolkit so they have they have um, they have another skill set to use. You know, that's great. That's great. I think especially the the focus on again, you know, we. In England, we called it the four-corner model, right? But um, making sure that you're taking into consideration the technical, the tactical, the psychological, and then the physical um, mm-hmm. within your sessions, but within um, player development. How much um, does video come into it, at least at the academy level, uh, for you? Like how, kind of, how often would you kind of sit down uh, with your goalkeepers to kind of discuss the, um, you know, their performance? Yeah, so what we have for uh, each goalkeeper is a player development plan, um, individual player development plan. Um, so I basically have a topic, technically, tactically, physically, mentally. I also added the social element now that we kind of put in there. And uh, what we'll try to do is focus on one area to improve at a time, okay? Uh, what we'll do is we usually will go through film. So let's say, for instance, we have a match on uh, Saturday or Sunday. We'll go over film on Tuesday. So we'll have Monday as a recovery day. You know, um, and then Tuesday we'll come in and we'll go ahead and, and go over the film. Uh, sometimes we have games that, for instance, we don't have a lot of action. So what I'll do is I will count the passes completed, incompleted and completed from the left and right side and show the goalkeeper if there's any tendencies for him to play more to one specific side. Uh, we'll try to notice the off the ball movement, whether it'll be a support or his positioning. But I think it's important to go over video. It's a fantastic tool. Uh, the kids definitely relate to it. And kids, you know, they learn visually, orally, and by action. So sometimes you might say something and you might repeat it over and over again. But at the end of the day, when you're showing it to them, like, for instance, I had a goalkeeper. He would get in a set position and his arms was always straight, straight, straight forward through. Okay. And that's not the right way to do it. So we would explain to him that, hey, your arms need to be in this position specific position and here's why and then i would show him it on video and he would say oh okay you know what you're right yeah I, I, it wasn't it wasn't the right way now i see it now i understand and obviously your hand placement depends on where the ball is and where the strikers are and that's a different topic but video is a very important tool and i would say that we definitely do it at least once once per week with the goalkeepers and if it's something that everybody can benefit from then we might bring in the, the whole unit you know maybe the goalkeepers from 15 and 16 together to learn from from one guy you know but we always try to use the sandwich method, which I'm sure you're, you're, you know about, which is a positive and an area to improve and another positive. We don't like to use a positive, negative, positive. So it's a positive area to improve and another positive. And that's that's the way we go upon that. That's great. That's great. So again, a lot of um, great points there. Um, so I know you've you've obviously, and, and you know, as you have alluded to, Maccabee Tel Aviv, one of the top academies at producing professional players, um, in the Israeli leagues, um, you know, just two to, to talk, uh, you know, to, to mention, obviously, Oscar Glach 
and then uh, Daniel Peretz, who have obviously come through and who are linked with obviously um, perhaps top moves and, and involved um, at the at the um, international level. Um, just talk about you know those players specifically. You know how you feel. You know the Maccabi Tel Aviv as, a, as an academy. You know what what are you guys doing that are that are really kind of separating um, your academy to allow players like that. You know the opportunity to play at like the, some of the top top levels. Um, you know uh, you know with as you've alluded to. Um, lesser resources as you know some of the um, you know top academies in Europe. It's kind of you know what what are some of those pillars um, that you that you see on a day to day basis that kind of um, separate the academy that allow these types of players to kind of come through and make a make a really big impact. I think uh, an important thing for our academy is the history and the culture that we have. So Maccabi Tel Aviv is probably the most successful and decorated club in Israel football. So the name itself, it'll attract top talents. Um, there's another club in Israel, which you might have heard of, Maccabi Haifa. Uh, this year, they actually beat Juventus in a Champions League uh, group stage match. They also played against uh, Paris Saint-Germain, as well as Benfica. So they're also a pretty decent club. But Maccabi Tel Aviv is leaps and bounds from what I've seen um, You know, in terms of developing players there are just on a different level. And I think it starts with scouting. So Maccabi Tel Aviv have uh, commercial schools. They have three commercial schools, which is close to around six to 700 kids. Now, if you look at these numbers compared, for instance, club like Benfica, Benfica have around 4,000 kids, okay? That's why they're developing guys like Joao Felix and selling him for uh, 100 million uh, pounds. But we have around six, 700 kids in our commercial school. From our commercial school, we have uh, around four to five scouts that are not only scout bringing players through our commercial schools, but are also scouring all of Israel to find the top talents and bring them into Israel. So um, what's really interesting about our first team is we probably have around, I would say, 60% of players coming from, from our academy level, which is very good in terms of finance-wise because we cannot just be going buying players from you know different countries. We don't have those resources. Um, Oscar Gluck, I think he started in the academy around the age of 9, 10. Uh, Daniel Perez, the goalkeeper, he has two co- three cousins that are came from the academy that are all professional players. One of them playing for the first team as well, and um, and those guys that came through the young ranks. Now, what's cool, what's interesting, and effective about Maccabi Tel Aviv's academy is the fact that when you have top talents playing together, these guys are developing each other to play at a higher level. Okay, so if if you have a top guy playing against mediocre competition, he's not getting challenged every day. Okay, so these guys are playing against the top guys in their age groups. We also have the opportunity to play them a year up. And when you play them a year up, the game is faster. The game is the decisions are are, are harder or the speed of thought needs to be quicker. So this is very challenging for them. And at the end of the day, in the academy structure, the most beautiful thing about that is you see the first team. So those guys come into the academy every day and they see the first team training. You know, they're getting tickets to go watch the games every um, every Sunday. You know, they're getting um, opportunities to be ball boys on the sidelines. So those guys are close to the dream. They feel it, you know. Uh, when I was a youngster growing up in America, we didn't have the MLS academies like we have now. And I think that we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of players developing. I mean, you can look at the last World Cup, the amount of young talent that came out of MLS academies has been, has been a phenomenal. And I think at Maccabi Tel Aviv, that in terms of academy settings, it's, it, it's the top in Israel, and it's because of this kind of environment that they have. And it's because, but, but I'll tell you what, Eric, scouting is very important because you got to find these young diamonds in the rough. And and when I came to Maccabi Tel Aviv, Oscar Gloch was a 14-year-old player, okay? And he was dominating. He was fantastic. Uh, last year, he was playing in the UEFA uh, U19 European Championships, and he was lighting up the tournament. Okay, he took the Israel national team to the finals. I mean, they ended up beating France in the semifinals, which was absurd. You know, like yeah. Israel, a small yeah. little country, beating France in the semifinals, and then they were they almost ended up beating England in the final. Okay, they ended up losing two to one, and Oscar scored a goal. But this this is for Israel as is such a small country. It's a fantastic achievement. Okay, now we're nowhere where we, where we should be because in my term, in my um. Standards. I look at countries like Croatia, which have a similar population size, and those guys are maximizing every single kid that they have on a roster and on a team. You know, so we are heading in a good direction. At the end of the day, it comes down to getting better coaches in the younger grassroots divisions and getting those guys to, to play 
at, at to getting the younger guys to maximize their talents. And that's what, what it comes down to what we talked about in the beginning. You know, we all want to we want to be coaches. We want to live our dream and coaching football and being a part of the game. But you need to you need to be up to your game in order to give the player what he deserves, you know, because if you got a guy that's that talented, who are you to go in there and give this guy incorrect information? So we need to be on top of our game. So when we have talents like this, we can help them get to their dreams and their goals. And we can maybe have a guy like this who's, you know, potentially about to sign for big clubs linked to a Dortmund and Liverpool and so on and so forth, you know. Fantastic. Uh, and, and again, just to kind of tie it all in, you, you know, you spoke about, the need for a, a great scouting network within the uh, club so that you can find those diamonds in the rough. Um, the pathway, right? You said 60% at least, you know, um, from the academy and making their way into the first team. So there's a clear pathway. For- I, I would say probably a little bit more than 60. Now, what, okay. what is, sorry to cut you off, Greg, but what's no, happening now, when we had the B team, we had a lot of our... Because um, our, there's a gap now in Israel football, right? So once you have the U19s, and then you just have the first the first division. And I think you had the same thing in the U.S. And then they created the MLS Next, which is a U23 division, right? Yeah. If you look at Croatia, their second division is only U23s, right? It's only U23 guys. These are the guys that they're going to build for the future of. So I think it comes down to the pathway. There's a gap between the U19 and the first division, and that's a huge gap. So what ends up happening in Maccabi Tel Aviv is they have every year – from the U19s, these guys are getting loaned out to other Premier League teams. So if you look at the statistics in our first team, it's probably 60%. But I guarantee you that every team in the Israel Professional uh, League, Premier League, they have at least three three, or three to four guys that have came through the Maccabi Tel Aviv Academy. You know? And, and some t- sometimes Maccabi has missed on some guys. There's a center back now that plays for our rival that we missed on him. You know, We released him at a certain age, and, and now he's one of the center backs for the Israel national team. But <clears> this is part of the game. You know, you're not going to hit on every guy. You know, it's, a, it's not an exact science. Of course. No, exactly. And I think, as you mentioned, having that pathway, though, and then the connection between academy to the first team, right? So I think, really, for a young player to be able to see it every single day you know, and kind of see their goal kind of across the field and you know, the first team players kind of um, within the same environment, I think that's a massive um, positive, right, um, to, to kind of um, helping them make that step um, to the to the first team. So just bringing it back full circle um, with regards to your current role. So you mentioned you're a specialist coach and you deal a little bit of set pieces um, and focus on defensive set pieces. So talk to us about what that looks like on a day-to-day with regards to, you know, cutting film and then um, really working with the different groups. Um, you know, what does that look like? Because, you know, we hear a lot about the, this new kind of, these new like kind of, specialist coaches whether they be set piece um throwing coaches or in possession out of possession as you see with some of the english youth national teams um what is your you know how is your position um really um you know how you know what does it look like on a day-to-day basis i think the main thing is to first of all to get the stigma of hey, just said we're working on set pieces, you know, once a week, fifteen minutes, couple of corners here, couple of corners there. I think we need to get that out of the way. We need to understand that set pieces is, is a key moment in football, right? So we have the we have attack, we have defense, we have defense to attack transition, attack to defense transition, and then you have set pieces. If you're looking at the World Cup, uh, not, I would not, I'm not going to go to the last World Cup. The statistics are still being uh, out there, and the technical reports being developed. But the the World Cup before that, right, 2018, we saw. England score a majority of their goals off of set pieces, right? And, and, and they were very, very, very successful with that. So we took an approach and we said, hey, we might need a set piece in certain games and we need to be clinical in these set pieces. So the way it works is we'll basically try to work on a one day in the attack, one day on defense, one day maybe we'll work on some... Uh, at the higher levels, the way it works is you'll basically go ahead and review the set pieces that you had. Let's say you had a match on Saturday. So on Sunday, we'll watch a video review what went well defensively what went well in the attack and then we'll say okay what can we improve and then you were gonna you're gonna go ahead and and and, um and prepare yourself for the next opposition so at the higher level you have film you have analysis you're gonna see how these teams stand right so for instance if a team is playing in a a zone right i might want to attack these zones right i might want to send certain players in these zones i might want to even play Right, maybe a short corner, maybe two or three players to come get that ball short and see how that manipulates their zone in order to 
create, you know, a diversion, maybe play a ball back post, right? If they're playing man-to-man, I might want to do some picks. I might want to do some blocks, right? I might want to try to capitalize on one of their weak players man-to-man and try to attack that space. So I think you need to develop a strategy of how you want to go upon these set pieces. I think nowadays also the set piece specialist kicker, right? So we have... um, a lot of guys who could kick balls and place them. You have goalkeepers who's all right, Rogerio Seri for Sao Paulo and um another gentleman from Paraguay, his name is it just ran out of my head. Uh, he was also fantastic at, at hitting goal goal uh, you know, free kicks at goals. So now we're seeing that a little bit being outdated. But if you have a guy who's very good at hitting those shots, you might you might have a sub left, right? In in the end of the game, you might have one substitution. There might be a kid on the bench who could hit these free kicks perfectly. You might want to put him on the field because that might be the difference between uh, moving on in the next round or or you know getting those three points or whatnot. So I think you gotta look at set pieces as as more of a, a key moment of the game and take it seriously. I mean there, there's around sixty throw ins per game, you know, on average for sometimes for teams. So how many of those throw-ins are you making the most out of them, right? Do you have a strategy for those throw-ins? So I know there's a coach uh, from um, Denmark. He's a very uh, popular coach, and he helps uh, teams like Liverpool. Thomas Grunemann, Grunemann, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it, so he says, hey, we play it fast, we play it long, or we play it clever. So that th- those are his three ways. But I think as coaches, especially guys at the amateur level or guys who are still you know learning learning the craft. If we take a little bit more attention into set pieces, and it's not just once a week for 10 minutes, you know, it's a little bit more of structuring them. Um, for instance, I'll give you an example of how you could do it. You have a small-sided game at the end of training, right? Blow some fouls. See how the team sets up the wall. Uh, give the guys some options. Now, now what we're, we're seeing now in, in, in soccer is some teams even have playbooks. So they'll take it from the American style of play where they have a couple of plays that they can do and some signals. And then we'll have some teams that let their players – make the decision on the field based on the picture they see, right? So they're going to have to be well-versed in, in that aspect. So I think that that piece is key. It's something that I've been able to help my club out a lot with. It took it took me time to prove myself in this aspect. It took me time to also educate the coaches and some of the, the, the club members that, hey, this is important for us and we need to be good at this because if we're not going to be good at this and our rival is good at this, then we're going to be in a problem. And I'll tell you why, why, why we're in a problem because our rival, Maccabi Haifa, they're probably the best team, one of the best teams in Europe in set pieces. I mean, they're, they're, they're fantastic. They have a goalkeeper coach that I got to work with in the um, UEFA A. We actually had to, we were one of the 15 coaches, uh, first 15 coaches in Israel to do the UEFA A goalkeeping license. And his, the, the amount of detail this gentleman puts into set pieces was, blew my mind away. Okay. And it gave me a little bit more motivation to say, Hey, I need to, I need to up my game. Okay. Because I see, you know, this guy's taking it to another level. I need to up my game. So I think it's important, Eric. And I think at some times when you're in those games where you need, you need some kind of trickery and it happened in the world cup, right? You saw Argentina yep. against Holland. You saw that clever set yeah, piece that they I was had. Mention that. Yeah, Nobody expected to happen. Yeah. Right. right. So, 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 so it's important. And what's cool about that play was, was the player, he did it in his German club and he came to the coach and he said, Hey man, I got something really cool. <laughs> I think we could use it. And, and, and with all the risk, and you know, Franz Hook, he said, all right, let, let's take a look at it. Let's see what we could do here. And it ended up being very pivotal for them. And the interesting you know, part there, the, the interesting part there, another uh, rabbit hole to, to dive down. There's a very interesting article that I'll link to you. You may have seen it or may not, but the link between the, uh, the Dutch national team and the Dutch um, field hockey team, because a lot of those set piece, um, set piece kind of um, goals and, and and ideas come from uh, field hockey. One of their staff was actually um, on their field hockey uh, international team's uh, staff. So 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 I'll definitely link that to you because I think you know exactly what you're talking about. It fits in so nicely with regards to you know it doesn't matter where the ideas are coming from. But, you know, you can kind of grab grab kind of gold dust everywhere. And it really depends on how creative and um, interested you are, right? Um, with regards to implementing them within your within your current uh, structure. Um, so that's great. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, alluding to what you were saying, Gareth Southgate, before their uh, 2018 World Cup, he actually flew over to the United States and got some inspiration from uh, NBA coaches and NFL coaches on how to run these kind of set set plays, you know. And I think it's very important to understand what kind of personnel you have. Okay, uh, we're seeing a trend in the world now. The statistics are showing that um, 
it's it's good to have players on the near and far post. You're you're given a lot less goals that way. Okay, if you're going to put them directly on the post or a meter off, that's the, depending on your uh, you know your strategic plan. But we're seeing that a hybrid defense, which is a mix of zone and man, is the most effective in, in the World Cup level and sometimes in in the high club level. This is what we're seeing in the statistics are showing. But at the end of the day, you need to see at what level you're at. And if you have a guy who's good in the air and he's dangerous and he can head the ball through traffic, then maybe set up some stuff for him. You know, it doesn't need to be rocket science. We need to have all these playbooks. But if you could just train it once in a while, and it's not just training the, the set piece itself. Sometimes just training the delivery. Maybe have on the guys stay after practice and just play some in-swinging and out-swinging balls to dummies, you know, or have a have two teams of a four, right? One team of blue, one team of green, and they're playing a competition of who could finish the most amount of corners with their head, you know? And just simple stuff like that will increase your, your efficiency on set pieces, you know? It doesn't have to be rocket science either. That's great. That's great, Sean. Some great ideas there. So <clears throat> just to bring it, um, you know, um, you know, to, to wrap up, um, again, we've spoken about some, some, some great different um, aspects here, um, you know, with regards to, you know, the professional development phase, set pieces, incorporating goalkeepers, self-development. Um, what, what's what's the next step for you? Like, what are your goals for the future moving forward? Where do you want to continue to develop? And what's kind of like the the uh, the evolution of your kind of development? Um, first off, since I am in Europe, it's important for me to go out to these European clubs and kind of see what they're doing. I kind of spoke to you about that. Uh, before we started the podcast about clubs, for instance, like Ajax and Azad Alkmaar in Holland. So uh, I've taken some visits out there. I've seen how they're developing players and they're they're on the cutting edge of technology. For instance, uh, Azad Alkmaar, they're doing a lot of brain training. Okay, it's called, they have a a, a website called Intelligym.com. So it's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-Gym.com. And that's basically a virtual reality decision-making type thing that these players are are going through in training okay um when i was when i was at these clubs i saw some very interesting things for instance at Asad alkmaar they trained with different balls right they had adidas they had nike nike they had a uh, you know all these type of different balls and i said hey what's going on over here why you got balls they said hey every time the player right needs to pass or shoot the ball and it's a different ball his brain needs to adapt right he needs to think how am i going to kick the ball how's the ball going to fly after i or how am I going to pass this ball? So these are these are very some things that you will not really think about on your own. I think that for me, the next step is consistently trying to evolve. So it's going out to these clubs, it's asking questions, it's seeing why a club like Azad Alkmaar right are developing now more players in Ajax, right? Because according to the statistics, forty-three players right of the um, of of Alkmaar right in the first first team. 43% of those minutes came from players that came to the academy. And if you look at Ajax, it's 37% of their players. Okay, it's, it's, it's a close number. And Ajax just sold 200 million uh, pound worth of players last year, right, to, to, uh, to big European teams. So wh- what are those teams doing, right, to, to develop the top guys? And how can I take from them to improve my guys, you know? And I think uh, for me, as long as I'm in Israel, I think I want to help the um, younger coaches get better because the better our coaches are, the better our players are. Uh, I think in a day and age where a lot of the kids are are more into the computer games, they're more into the you know you know staying at home and being comfortable. We're kind of missing that street soccer element. So if you see a lot of these clubs, they have different surface training, whether it'll be grass, whether it'll be uh, concrete pitch stuff. So I'm figuring out how we could do that. Whether it'll be futsal, right? For instance, when I used to work in South Florida, the soccer academy and training center. We used to do a lot of futsal every Friday, right? We had players coming out of that program, like Aiden Morris, who is now at a, he's getting his first U.S. national team camp, uh, cap, right? Yep. So he came out of, out, out of that program and those guys were playing futsal once a week. Yep. And I'm sure, and I'm sure that Aiden Morris didn't get developed just by that academy. I'm sure he, he got developed playing on his own, making a lot of mistakes, making a lot of, you know, decision making, playing with faster, bigger guys because he has a brother that's also his teammate in, in Columbus crew. So um, these are the kind of things that I'm trying to do is trying to always be on the cutting, cutting edge of learning and making myself not only a better coach, but figuring out what these top clubs are doing. Okay. Cause if I could figure out what they're doing, I can make my environment a little bit better. I might not make it like them for sure. Not Ajax, you know, or these kind of big clubs, but I can make it better, you know, and, and that's, that's the ultimate goal. Absolutely. So love, love that. Um, to end the podcast, I think, you know, especially just always looking for 
you know, where you can get that 1%, right? How can you get 1% better in, in every single aspect is, is, is fantastic, sure. Um, so just, um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to keep track of your kind of um, developments and, and kind of where you're going, uh, someone with some fresh ideas and somebody who's always looking to get better. Um, where's the best way to keep, to keep track of your progress, Shah? Uh, do you have Twitter or LinkedIn? What's the best way? Yeah, I have LinkedIn. It's uh, Shah Hagiel, S-H-A-H-A-G-I-L on LinkedIn. I also have an Instagram account as well if anybody wants to uh, you know, send the, you know, information, questions, and share ideas and definitely into that. And that's, um, you know, Shah underscore Hagiel. That's my Instagram account. And feel free to email me as well. You know, my email is shahagiel1 at gmail.com. You know, I'm always open to talk football and to um, find ways to get ourselves better as coaches. Fantastic. Thanks, Shah. Appreciate your time, okay? Thank you, Eric. It's been fantastic, and thanks for the experience. Really appreciate it. It's been good talking to you, and best of luck to you, buddy. Thanks, man. on our journey to educate and develop the current and next generation of coaches. Our staff strives to achieve our mission to give the game back to the players, one coach at a time. Visit www.coachedsoccer.com for all your coach education needs.